It's an absolute joy to be here with you today. This place holds such fond, special memories. My family and I were here for 18 years. And so we have relationships that are important, that are incredibly deep with so many of you. Um, We have such deep respect for the leadership of this church, both the present leadership and the, the past leadership. And so it is really special to be here. And it's special to be able to talk about what I'm going to talk about. They've asked me to speak about silence and solitude and stillness. And why that's special is because I learned that stuff right here. At least that was the beginning of my journey into silence and solitude and stillness, or what some people call contemplative Christianity. Back in 1995, I was working at Youth for Christ. We were members of this church. Um, We were very involved on the worship teams and other places. And the pastor at that time, Andy Luke, began to speak about contemplative spirituality. And I was really interested in that because I was feeling like really stuck in my faith. And I was feeling like I needed something different and something new. So I went to see him. I said, tell me more about this. And so he began to explain to me what retreating was and what a silent retreat was. And before we were done with the conversation, he had offered to book the venue for me, to pay for it, and he even loaned me his car so I could go on my first retreat. And that was the beginning of a journey that, I don't want to sound cliche-ish, but was life-changing for me. A journey that has lasted for 25 years and that continues on to this day. So I'm super excited to share some thoughts around that. And I'm really excited that we're calling this God spaces and not spiritual disciplines. Because I don't think spiritual disciplines gets at it right. In my mind, a discipline is something that I do to attain to try to reach a goal, to try to make something happen. So if I want to lose weight, I discipline myself in what I eat or what I don't eat mostly um, so that I can lose weight. Or if I want to run the comrades, I discipline myself to get out and to do the case because there's this goal, there's this thing I want to attain. Sometimes in Christianity, we're so obsessed with getting better being better Christians, being better parents, being better spouses, just being better. And that's all good. But God's spaces are not about being better. They're just about being. Just about being in the presence of God himself. Not about what I can attain or how I can get better, what I must do. It's just about being. If you look in the Bible for contemplative spirituality, um, you're not going to find a text that says this is what you must do. But you will see some examples of people in the scriptures who practiced contemplative spirituality. So King David, for example, often says, you know, meditate on the law. He's the one that wrote, uh, be still and know that I am. Or if you look at the life of Jesus, he regularly participated in this kind of spirituality. After he was baptized in the Jordan uh, by John the Baptist, 
He was about to start his ministry, but before he did, he spent 40 days in the desert in silence and solitude and stillness to prepare himself for what was ahead. Now, we know about the temptations and all that happened during that time, but it was about being contemplative as he prepared for his ministry. In Luke chapter 6, um, he's about to name the 12 apostles. They had had some disciples that were following him around, and from that he was going to pick the 12 apostles and name them. And uh, before he did, he went off, he withdrew, he went to a place, and he spent the night in contemplative spirituality. Sometimes you wonder, like, what did he do all night? Because, I mean, just to get a list from the Father, to say, okay, here's the 12, that's the list, that doesn't seem like it takes very long. But I don't think that's what it was about. I think it was about just spending time in God's presence as he reflects on these men and who they were and how he moves forward. In Matthew chapter 14, there's a story of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was murdered, beheaded, by King Herod, and Jesus was shattered. He was distraught, and so what does he do? He withdraws. He goes and he spends the night on his own. In fact, in Luke chapter 5, it tells us that Jesus often withdrew to be on his own, to be in silence and solitude and stillness. He would withdraw from the pressure, the ministry, all the people, all the stuff, all the demands, all the craziness. He would withdraw to be in the presence of his Father. And so I want to unpack these three things, because we could just talk about contemplation, but I want to unpack it in three things with silence and solitude and stillness, because while they're kind of the same thing and they certainly overlap a lot, they also are different. So let's start with silence. Silence is about stopping the noise. The noise that goes out, and the noise that comes in. I'm a very verbal person, and so there's a lot of going out. There's a lot of output. When I'm talking, talking, talking all the time, which is usually what I do, I'm not listening very well. I'm not listening to myself. I'm not listening to my body. I'm not listening to the soul of what goes on inside me because I'm talking, 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 talking. Or sometimes we just let the noise come in and come in and come in. I I like to run, and when I do, I always have something, almost always have something in my ears. I need music or a podcast or a book or something in my ears. I like noise, and sometimes I've just got to shut up and be still, be quiet, and just listen. So that's stillness. Solitude, Solitude is about withdrawing. It's about pulling pulling away. It's what Jesus did. We withdraw. Some of us are addicted to people, people being around us. We just need people. We need their energy. We feed, we feed off of that all the time. And solitude is about withdrawing from all of the energy and all the stuff that goes on. Sometimes when we get by ourselves, we don't know what to do. But solitude is about being on your own. And then stillness. I have a granddaughter. She's three years old. Her name's Millie. She was born here in South Africa, and she has lived here for the first three years, but just a month ago, they moved back to the States. But Millie used to play this game with me. I, I could be doing almost anything at any time of day, and she would just suddenly go, stop, and she'd put her hand up. And, this, and the game was, I must just stop whatever I'm doing and just freeze, and not talk, and not say anything, until she said, go, and then you could move and go, and then she'd go, stop, and then you just have to stop. 
That's, um, that's stillness. Stop. Just stop, the cra- stop all the production. We are so tuned in. We think we have to pr- be producing, producing, producing all the time. We've got to have stuff happening. We've got to be doing all the time. And stillness is just about stopping the craziness. So that's what I want to talk about. Silence and solitude and stillness. So the question is why? Why is this important? If it's not something that is like mandated by the Bible, and if it's not something that we're trying to attain, you know, we're trying to get better, then why, why are these God spaces important? What difference does it make? And I've thought about that for a long time. Why? Why should we fast or why should we pray or why should we worship or why should we engage in silence and solitude and stillness and the answer for me is because sometimes god seems invisible sometimes it seems like god is just like gone from the scene you know sometimes life can get so busy You know, it feels like you're on this little treadmill like the hamster and you're moving and moving and going faster and faster. And you dare not stop the treadmill because if you do, you're just going to go, you know, right around. And so you're going and going and going and just trying to keep up. But you don't feel like you're getting anywhere and you're going. You're looking around. You're going, God, where are you? And God just seems to be nowhere. Or sometimes we get stuck. You know, you just kind of feel like I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm going to church. I engage in worship. You know, I, I, I'm part of a, a life group. I read the Bible. I pray. And it's like, there's got to be, is there more? Sometimes you just get stuck in everything that you're doing. And God seems like, you know, you pray and you just feel like God isn't there. Or sometimes failure comes. We just blow it. Like, like big time, we blow it. And we hurt people around us. We hurt ourselves. We disappoint ourselves and we struggle to forgive ourselves for the failure in our lives. And it, and it feels like maybe God's just turned his back on me because God can't look at that. God could never look on me. And so God feels so far removed. Or sometimes tragedy comes. And tragedy has this way of just just consuming our thoughts so much that we just can't sense that God is... Where are you, God, in the midst of this? I want to tell you a story about a little girl. She's one years old. Her name is Andiswa. Or we called her Andy. But Andiswa, some of you know that uh, my wife and I are crisis care parents so we have we care for little abandoned babies in our home so we have six babies with us at any given time we've been doing this for seven and a bit years now and um, we've had like 62 different babies that have that have been with us but andy was special she came to us in december of 2018 she was already three months old um, and she was abandoned at that age. We knew nothing of her medical history or her background. We just knew her name was Andiswa. And so she came to us, and she was, she was great. She was happy. The milestones were good until about April. 
And then one morning she began to have seizures. And so he rushed her off to the hospital and they spent the day um, caring for her and getting her stable. And then we ran a bunch of tests only to find out that she had TB meningitis. We didn't know what that really was, but it sounded bad, and it was. And then she began to have swelling on her brain and her head grew and she was in serious, serious pain all the time. And so by October, after being in and out of hospital a number of times and all kinds of tests, in October of that year, we, they did a, um, a surgery to drain the fluid from her brain, which helped considerably. Um, she was able to get off her pain medication and she was really doing well. Um, this picture that I'm gonna show you was a picture that was taken um, in mid-December, like around the 15th or 16th of December, 20, last December, 2019. And she seemed to be doing so, so well. But on the 21st of December was a Saturday. I was out running the park run. Well, running is probably exaggerated. I was out doing. I was at the park run. Let's do that. I was there in Mshlanga, and I got a call from my wife, and she said, you need to come home. Andy's not doing well. So I went back home. We took her to the hospital, and um, she was having seizures again. And about 5 o'clock that evening, she passed away. We were... Devastated? What language do you use? Shattered, distraught, angry. I mean, all that stuff you go through. But then I was reminded, a few weeks before this, I was working on a sermon, and, and I had come across this verse in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. And then I read it from the message. So let, me, let me read this to you. It says this. Energize the limp hands, strengthen the rubbery knees, tell fearful souls courage, take heart. God is here. God is right here. Those words got me through that time. And to be honest, they've gotten me through 2020 because it hasn't got a whole lot better since December of last year. And those words have come back to me over and over again in the midst of the struggle of 2020, that God is here, God is right here. There's language in the modern church that sometimes drives me crazy. And I understand why we say it, but we talk about God showing up. So if you, know, if you go to worship and it's like, it's like everything's happening, it's clicking and it's all really working well and you're going like, wow, God really showed up. And I appreciate that we're trying to give God credit, but God doesn't show up, he's already here. God is here. And what these God spaces are about and what silence and solitude and stillness are is a place, a way to step in to God's presence, because God is there. See, this isn't about if we do it well enough, if we fast enough, or if we obey enough, or if we pray hard enough, then God might show up in our space. No, 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 God is in the space, and he's just waiting for us just to step in to what he wants to do, to what he wants to say, to who he wants to be in our lives. God is here. God is right here. Let me quickly, before we end, take you to 
a passage, and I promise I'll be fast, in, in 1 Kings. It's a story that many of you are familiar with. It's the story of Elijah. Elijah was like the first prophet of Israel, one of the main prophets, one of the big guys, right? So, so Elijah is in the northern kingdom of Israel, and the king at the time was a guy by the name of Ahab who had a delightful wife by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel wasn't Jewish, and she wasn't, a, you know, a, a worshiper of Yahweh. She was a worshiper of Baal, and she was actually anti all the worshipers of Yahweh. So she ran around the country destroying all the places they would sacrifice and, and causing all kind of uphill. And then she started killing all the prophets of Yahweh until there weren't many left. And, and she was after Elijah. I mean, Elijah was the main catch, right? He was the main mana. So she wanted him. So there's a bounty on his head. So anyway, the, the short story is that, that Elijah says, okay, enough of this. We're going to find out which God is really God, Baal or Yahweh. And so he gathers them all at Mount Carmel. And, and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. All the, all the prophets of Baal, build a, an altar to your God, put a bunch of wood on there and, you know, kill an animal and put it on there. And we're going to do the same thing over here for Yahweh. So they built these two altars. And then the, 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 the prophets of Baal were supposed to pray until the fire came and then lit the, the sacrifice. And they prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing happened. Then it's, it's Elijah's turn. He prays, this ball of fire comes from heaven, just, just, engulfs this thing it just burns up everything and it's like boom drop the mic walk off the stage you won we know whose god is god but then elijah does something really interesting elijah says okay gather up all the prophets of baal and the people do that and then elijah kills every single one of them by his own hand he murders every one of the prophets of baal that's chapter 18. In chapter 19, you find Elijah depressed, scared, wondering what he's done, what, what has just happened here. Let me read it to you from chapter 19. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. He says, what has just happened? See, you should be excited. You should, he won, you know? I mean, this is a big deal, but he's not. So God speaks to him, and then God sends him to this cave, and, and then later on it says this. Elijah says this to God in, in verse 10. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken your covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord said. And Elijah stood there. The Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. The Lord was in the gentle whisper. Not the fire, not the earthquake, not the wind. God was in the stillness, in the solitude, and in the gentle whisper. 
in the midst of all that Elijah was going through, in the midst of his depression, in the midst of this craziness, in the midst of what was probably his greatest victory and maybe his greatest failure at the same time, in the midst of it all, God was there. God was there in the whisper. Maybe you find yourself today where you feel like you're stuck, like things just aren't working, like you're even wondering why you do this week after week. Know that God is in that space and God invites you to come and experience him. Or maybe you're feeling like you failed miserably or maybe you're just, you, you face tragedy or maybe you're all just on this treadmill but it seems like God is nowhere. I would encourage you to stop trying to do and just be. Just be in God's presence. Join one of these buses today Get on board with this thing and just spend the next four weeks not trying to be better, not trying to get better, not trying to attain something, but just being with God through these God spaces. Stop doing. Start being. God bless.